Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, traditional Greek culture has been preserved in Tarpon Springs since the early 1900s. Most of the people there do speak Greek, and they get up in the morning and have Greek food and sweep out their courtyards, which have various plants you might see in Greece, you know, and they'll have their coffee outside. We'll discuss the St. John's Railway. Some of the earliest rail lines date back to years prior to the American Civil War. And we'll talk about privateers or legally sanctioned pirates. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In the city of Tarpon Springs, you can listen to Greek music, try the tasty pastry baklava, have a meal of lamb stew or a unique Greek seafood dish, sip the licorice-flavored alcoholic beverage ouzo, and enjoy many other aspects of traditional Greek culture. You can see the neo-Byzantine-style architecture of St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Church and watch the sponge divers unload their catch on the city dock downtown. Tarpon Springs has the largest percentage of Greek Americans of any city in the United States. Even before the first 500 Greek sponge divers arrived in Tarpon Springs in 1905, a thriving town was already in place. The Diston land purchase of 1881, when Hamilton Diston bought 4 million acres of land for 25 cents an acre, led to the establishment of Tarpon Springs. Diston brought businessman Anson Safford to Tarpon Springs to stimulate development. Tina Bukovalis is curator of arts and historical resources for the city of Tarpon Springs and says that Safford moved into a small dog trot style cracker house. They uh, improved the house by adding a second story and expanding it um, and it became quite a showcase uh, basically trying to show the elegant way that people could live in Florida uh, at a time when this was really in many ways still kind of a frontier town uh, but through the influence of Anson Stafford uh, and uh, Hamilton Diston and, and the wealthy northerners that came in, you know, there did, uh, Tarpon Springs did develop to, be, uh, to become one of the early uh, and very elegant resorts. The Victorian home that Safford created can be enjoyed today. The Safford House Museum features period furniture and original family artifacts that preserve the home as it was in 1883. Soon after Anson Safford began developing Tarpon Springs, the Orange Belt Railway came to the town in 1887. The train depot is now a museum. Sharon Sawyer is archivist for the Tarpon Springs Area Historical Society, which operates the museum. The building we're in was built in 1909 because the original railroad station burned down in 1908. And this was restored in 2005 to its original um, floors you'll notice in uh, the pine floors out front and also the warehouse floors in the back are the original. Uh, the walls we've left um, with the writing on it 
And um, so this is this was um, segregated when it was built. Uh, there's, if you go out front, there's a colored waiting room and a white waiting room, and th there was a wall in between the two that was torn down in the 70s, not until the 70s. Um, the station master's room is the next room over, and we have exhibits in that, and then the warehouse area we have. Um, pretty much the history of Tarpon Springs uh, that you can go through. So it's, it's a neat museum. Displays at the Tarpon Springs History Museum include profiles of prominent physicians, including Dr. Mary Jean Safford. Mary was Anson Safford's sister and is believed to be the first female physician in Florida. Shelving and bottles from the 1880s drugstore are also displayed, along with artifacts from the Orange Belt Railway. Sharon Sawyer. One thing uh, about the railroad, it was um, brought here by Peter Demons, Demons Landing in St. Petersburg. Uh, he, he brought the railroad from Sanford to Tarpon Springs and then on down to St. Petersburg. And it was supposed to be the longest um, 12 gauge, I guess it is, railroad in the United States at that time. So um, before the railroad came, Everybody had to get here by boat or uh, wagon. So the railroad in 1887 made the big difference here in town, I believe. It was the sponge industry, though, that really put Tarpon Springs on the map. By the mid-1800s, there was a thriving sponge industry in the Florida Keys, but by the beginning of the 20th century, Tarpon Springs was the largest sponge port in the United States. While sponges in the Keys were harvested with long poles, in Tarpon Springs, Greek sponge divers donned canvas suits with round metal helmets. Tina Bukovalis explains what makes the Tarpon Springs community unique. Florida is the only place in the country that uh, sponges grow, and, and the sponge industry was the biggest maritime industry in Florida, and we're talking millions in the late 19th century, which was quite something. Um, and um, Key West at that time, you know, in the 19th century was a bigger producer, but uh, once uh, sponges were discovered in this area in 1873, the whole area from here up up to Apalachicola became a hotbed of sponging, and eventually um, Tarpon Springs became a market for sponges, uh, and when Greeks came into this area as uh, sponge buyers, uh, John Kokoros, uh, he realized that the way sponges were harvested in Greece would uh, produce far more than the methods, the hooking methods they were using in Florida. So they brought over Greeks, and um, uh, it was advertised that there was uh, a lot of business to be done here. So uh, at first, 500 came in 1905, and then within a couple of years, there were 1,500, and there were lots of boats. And uh, it uh, very quickly made uh, Tarpon Springs the sponge capital of the world. Tarpon Springs was a big, important town at a time when St. Pete was a, a wide place in the road. Uh, and there were buyers here from Europe. Uh, it, it was quite a place. Uh, and um, before long, I mean, within a couple decades, the Greeks were the majority. Or the, well, I would say they were the dominant population element because there were several population elements. There were the, there's the Anglo element and the African American, which had a very big Bahamian influence because of the sponge industry. But for a long time, the Greeks were the dominant population element. So the fact that this was a big uh, pocket of Greek culture and has remained so 
uh, I was talking to a friend of mine not long ago in Miami who's a cultural geographer, and she pointed out that this is the only place in Florida that has such a unique, ongoing, uh, whole cloth pocket of European settlement. There are places with Latin American settlement, West Indian settlement, but European communities, this is, this is unique in Florida. With the large influx of Greek sponge divers and their families to Tarpon Springs, businesses to serve them were established, including restaurants, grocery stores, bakeries, and coffee houses. St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Church was constructed in 1907 and expanded in 1943 with marble imported from Greece. The unique Epiphany celebration held on January 6th attracts people from around the world. Following a ceremony at St. Nicholas, the congregation walks to the sponge docks downtown where a wooden cross is thrown into the water. The young man who retrieves the cross is believed to be blessed for the year. The Patriarch of Constantinople, who is the Greek Orthodox equivalent of the Pope, came to Tarpon Springs in 2006 for the 100th anniversary of the city's unique Epiphany celebration. Tita Bukovalis, former folklorist for the state of Florida, explains that there are many examples of Greek culture in Tarpon Springs. I think in, in all instances in which there are large um, bubbles you know, of population, such as with Cubans in Miami, you know, or Greeks here, you get more of a whole cloth culture. And here um, the culture has been brought over pretty much whole cloth. Uh, I mean, as, as one writer pointed out, um, when the Greeks came to here, they actually changed their life very little from what it was in Greece because the climatic conditions were very similar. They were in the same occupations. They were living together, you know, and eventually they brought their families over in a certain part of town. You know, they brought the priests and religion in. And basically, it was very much like living in Greece. And so even today, you know, after people have been here, some people for four or five generations, you know, depending how quickly and when they came over, you know, um, there's still a big segment of the population that speaks Greek. I live in the part of town called Greek Town, and most of the people there are Greek, and most of the people there do speak Greek. And they get up in the morning and have Greek food and sweep out their courtyards and which have various plants you might see in Greece, you know, and they'll have their coffee outside. And the old ladies and their headscarves will be going over to St. Michael's Chapel or St. Nicholas or whatever, or down to the bakery, the National Bakery down the street, which is a Greek bakery, or to Halki Market, which has been there for a hundred years or so. Uh, the men will go, walk right by my house to go to the Caffeinea, which are traditional men's Greek coffee houses. Uh, a lot of them who are old divers and things will go down to the sponge docks, which is a few blocks down the street, and just hang out at the docks to, to, ha to hang out with other old guys and see what the divers and things are doing. You know, it's, uh, you know, the people with the gift shops, while it may look like tourist shops, the culture there is very much an active Greek culture. The dominant language is probably Greek. If you go down there, you sp I mean, if I go down there to go to the hockey market, I'll spend two hours, you know, talking to various people. You know, it's like living in a small Greek town uh, with all the ups and downs. <laughs> the Greek history and culture of Tarpon Springs is preserved in a new heritage center with exhibits and artifacts and space for public gatherings. Greeks have the dominant culture in Tarpon Springs, but archivist Sharon Sawyer has lived in the city for almost 60 years and says that all people get along in this small community. The Greeks and the Anglos, everyone, as far as I can remember, got along 
it was like a, a community project for all of us. Some of my best friends are Greek girls. Some of them are uh, Cracker girls. You know, it's it's uh, just it's still got that small community uh, feeling about it. So there are a lot of people that have moved in, but it still has that small community feeling. You don't find that everywhere. A trip to downtown Tarpon Springs provides the opportunity to see spongers at work sailing into port on boats with unique Greek designs. Tina Bukovalis. There's a special kind of sponge boat that developed in the Aegean, which is called an Akdarmas, which is a type of trahandri, which is a, a type of Greek fishing boat. But this particular boat was designed for sponging, and some of the spongers swear that this is still the best design. Um, and uh, back in the early days and up until, you know, a few decades ago, these, these boats were being produced hundreds and hundreds were produced from here to Apalachicola because Greeks went all the way from here up the coast and were working in maritime industries. So, for instance, the one that's sitting in the middle of the sponge exchange as a display was built in Apalachicola and sailed down here for sale. But, um, yeah, these boats have a, a very different bow, you know, than, than most boats do, different design, you know, but they're very stable and uh, have all the right stuff, you know, to carry the sponges and everything. The last, um, the last boat builder, Greek boat builder, is George Sarukos, who got a, a received a Folk Heritage Award uh, in 2009. And there's only one working Greek sponge boat, um, and it's his last boat that he built, and that's owned by Tasso Karastinos, who, who also won a Folk Heritage Award in 2009. 10 uh, as a sponge diver and captain. The history and culture of Tarpon Springs is preserved at the Safford House Museum, the Train Depot Museum, and the Heritage Center. While tourism has eclipsed sponge diving as the economic engine driving Tarpon Springs, it's still the living, active maritime community that attracts tourists to the downtown docks. It is a working waterfront, and um, although the sponge industry has shrunk, um, a lot of the boats, but not all of the boats, still dock there. The city has 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 essentially given them this part of the downtown working docks uh, to have their boats, and they conduct do conduct their business from there. So during a significant part of the year, from from about the beginning of April and of March, you know, to November through November, uh, the the spongers will be. Uh, coming in and going out, and um, you know when they're not uh, uh, having downtime and working on their boats and out there, they are loading, unloading sponges, processing sponges. They are actually the best ambassadors for the town because almost all of them are very articulate and very willing to talk to people and explain what they're doing, and you know are essentially demonstrating the processes right there on the docks. And then, and then surrounding the docks area across the street are various shops. Um, many of them are gift shops, but there's also quite a few restaurants. And it's not just for tourists. That's where locals go, too, all, all the time, you know, so people can experience culture there. Or, you know, some of the shops are full of Greek CDs or videos, again, you know, where locals go, you know. So... Um, people can still come in and have access to Greek culture that way. Tina Bukovalis is Curator of Arts and Historical Resources for the City of Tarpon Springs. We also spoke with Sharon Sawyer, Archivist for the Tarpon Springs Area Historical Society.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Established in 1856, the Florida Historical Society is the oldest existing cultural organization in the state. Find out how you can be a part of Florida history by visiting us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. If you miss the train I'm on, you will know that I am gone. You can hear the whistle blow a hundred miles. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, when discussing the first railways on the east coast of Florida, most people think of Henry Flagler, but he wasn't the only one constructing railways. That's right. In fact, some of the earliest rail lines date back to uh, the years prior to the American Civil War. And one in particular uh, was called the St. John's Railway, and it was only about 15 miles long. Uh, the track was very rudimentary. In fact, it only consisted of uh, wooden lines with scrap steel bolted together. Uh, and it was first uh, chartered in 1858, so just prior to the American Civil War. And the track ran from a small community on the west bank of the St. John's River, known as Tekoi, and it traveled 15 miles directly west to St. Augustine. And it was uh, a way to avoid the treacherous uh, uh, sea passage into uh, St. Augustine through St. Augustine Inlet over the, uh, over the bar, uh, which often uh, would shipwreck a number of, of passenger lines as they were coming into St. Augustine. So this was another way to come through Jacksonville, up the St. Johns River, stop at this landing, and then travel the short 15-mile uh, trip over, uh, via the rail line uh, over to St. Augustine. Now, during the American Civil War in 1862, Union gunboats began traveling up the St. Johns River, and they actually uh, came up to the uh, the stopping point of the uh, uh, the steamships and destroyed a number of the locomotives. They actually tore up the track, took all of the new track that would have been laid, and shipped it up to South Carolina. So it wasn't until after the Civil War in the late 1860s that some of the company owners were able to gather enough funds to rebuild the line. But it was still very crude. And it wasn't until the 1880s that they converted it to a standardized uh, narrow-gauge line and it was during this uh, early 1880s period that this rail line really saw the, the heyday of its operation. And you have documents here from the St. John's Railway collection dating from that period, the 1880s. Right, that's correct. Uh, now, the rail line is uh, much like a number of these other small rail lines. It was a business, um, and oftentimes if it wasn't making money, the rail would be uh, sold uh, to different owners. And it wasn't until uh, the early 1880s that Richard McLaughlin became president, and these are the, the documents that we're looking at. Most of them are, are letters that came directly from uh, the president, from McLaughlin, and were sent out to some of his rail employees. Now, again, it was only 15 miles worth of track, but they had a couple of different locomotives that were running throughout the day. So during the winter months, uh, there was there was more quite a bit of frequent activity uh, and more travel between St. Augustine and some of the uh, steamboat stops along the St. John's River. And what we're looking at here of, of I think uh, some particular interest would be a uh, letter that was um, dated 1884, and it's written by a gentleman by the name of Charles Smith. And we believe that Charles Smith was an employee of, uh, employed in some capacity on the railway. Uh, but it's a list of medical bills uh, in uh, connection to his uh, leg being amputated. 
And uh, essentially what he's writing is that he acknowledges that the company paid for uh, all of his medical bills, and in doing so, he is um, uh, freeing the company from any blame of uh, carelessness uh, and certifies that it was his own fault and that the company could not be sued uh, in exchange, we're assuming, for, uh, for the payment of his, uh, the amputation of his leg. Uh, so this just kind of goes to show you how rough some of these early frontier rail lines could be. Sure. And and we have to assume he didn't have a gun to his head, even though it's on St. John's Railway of Florida stationery. Uh, what else have you got here? That's right. <laughs> We're also looking at a small booklet. These are the rules and regulations for the St. John's Railway Company. And this would have been given to any of the employees. This is dated 1876. Uh, and one of the stipulations here uh, is that... Um, if the employee, for whatever reason, encounters a drunk uh, passenger, it is up to the employee to make sure that that drunk passenger is safely removed from the train uh, and that uh, they were to keep them separate from any other passengers. Um, and also lists that any injuries must be immediately reported to the main office before any medical attention uh, is given to the passenger, and that probably connects to the letter that we were just looking at. Huh. And there are a number of other uh, what we might consider now to be against any kind of uh, regulation for, for employees uh, that would uh, restrict employees from reporting uh, incidents such as the, the one that we just read about. Hmm. Well, what eventually happened to the St. John's Railway? Well, interestingly enough, we'd mentioned Flagler at the top of the segment. Henry Flagler, of course, came into uh, uh, to Florida and, and began developing what would become the Florida East Coast Railroad. And a lot of people would assume that he just laid brand new track. But what he started doing was buying up a lot of these small railroads. I mean, there was uh, essentially existing infrastructure. And that's what happened with the St. John's Railroad. In the early 1890s, he bought the uh, full 15 miles worth of track. He only used about four miles of it, converted it to a standard gauge. But by 1896, the entire rail line was completely abandoned. Uh, most of the iron was scrapped, uh, but the road grade, or the rail grade rather, was converted to a road and is now known as Tacoy Road that runs uh, west from St. Augustine up in St. John's County. Hmm. Fascinating history as always, Ben. Thanks. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is a graduate student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. She has this report on privateers in Spanish colonial Florida. Florida at the time was a Spanish colony. Many of the other colonies, Spain's colonies, had rebelled and were seeking their independence. Florida, Cuba, Puerto Rico, those are the ones that stay loyal to Spain. Florida became involved in the Spanish-American Wars of Independence by being a Spanish colony that these other revolutionary leaders thought would be a good idea to attack, kind of open a new front in the Spanish-American Wars of Independence. And Amelia Island was a great place for that because it had a port they could sponsor privateering. And very critically, this is very important, is right on the border with Georgia, meaning it's right on the border with the United States. So you could locate yourself in Amelia Island in Spanish-American territory, independent territory, but also have access to U.S. ports for supplies, to sell your goods that have been captured, for manpower coming back. It's a place to smuggle slaves. So they have the best of both worlds outside of U.S. jurisdictions. The United States can't get at them easily, but practically it's wide open for them to get into. 
That was historian and author Dr. David Head. In his book *Privateers of the Americas: Spanish-American Privateering from the United States in the Early Republic*, he explains why Amelia Island was a hotspot for privateering during the Spanish-American Wars of Independence in the early 19th century. Here, Dr. Head describes the differences and similarities between pirates and privateers. Pirates and privateers are similar in that they're each types of sailors who attack other vessels and take their goods. They both have in common that they are private actors, so they're not government-sponsored. They're not a naval vessel. Privateers. What makes them legal and distinct from pirates is that they have a license to attack enemy goods. So during times of war in the 17th, 18th, and the first part of the 19th century, governments would issue a license to merchant sailors,、uh, merchant captains, to attack their enemies.、Uh, so they have this license called a commission or a letter of mark, and that makes it legal what they do. Privateers are supposed to stick only to vessels of the enemy. Privateers have a license. Pirates don't. Privateers stick to the enemy. Pirates steal from everyone. As Doctor Head explains, men were motivated to become privateers for a variety of reasons. The privateers that I've studied show a lot of different motivations. Sometimes in the same guy, so people can have multiple motivations. Privateering traditionally is a business, and so it was a way for ship owners to put their ships in some productive capacity during war. So during wartime, when trade is restricted or more dangerous, they could turn over to still making money out of their very expensive ships. And if you're successful as a privateer, if you captured another vessel, you could potentially make a lot of money. A privateer sailors not paid wages; they're paid prize money. A prize is a captured vessel, but it also sounds like like a lottery prize, which is kind of what it is. So if you capture a really good vessel, you could make a lot of money on this. Of course, a lot of guys went home with nothing. It could be a big win, but also very often. They come home with absolutely nothing, so that's one reason—the money. Another reason that's very interesting for these guys who start sailing on behalf of Spanish America is that they seem to actually like Spanish American independence. And then you see all kinds of other motivations. Some of the sailors say that they were drunk when they were signed aboard a Spanish American privateer. One guy, I have a quote from him. He says he was groggy, probably literally groggy, full of grog, when he decided to do this. Amelia Island attracted famous pirates and privateers, such as Captain William Kidd. Captain Edward Teach, known as Blackbeard, Gregor MacGregor, and Louis Michel Ory. Doctor Head tells us more about Gregor MacGregor and Louis Michel Ory, two privateers who tried to conquer Amelia Island. There was an effort started by a man named Gregor MacGregor, and he had been in the service of Venezuela. He had fought alongside of Simon Bolivar. He he gets out of the Venezuelan service and decides to go out on his own, and he leads an expedition to attack Amelia Island. The idea being to conquer one of Spain's colonies. This is supposed to be a sort of first step onto attacking mainland Florida. That doesn't go very well. His resupply ship never really came, and he gave up. Around the same time that McGregor gave up, another guy, Louis Michel Ory, he was a French privateer. He came to Amelia Island, and seeing that McGregor was out of the way, he stepped in and took control over the island. Within a few months, Ory surrendered Amelia Island to the United States. Naval forces captured Amelia Island on December twenty third, eighteen seventeen. Thomas Jefferson has a wonderful quote, a little bit earlier period, in the early eighteen hundreds, about Florida and the U.S. desire to acquire Florida. He basically says, "Yeah, it's just sand and pine trees, but strategically, we can't let anybody else have it." For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, a student in the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. 
That's where you can listen to archived editions of this program and much more. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.